0: This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Life is full of choices, and Belkin offers a variety of tech solutions that keep you connected to your world so you never miss a beat. Remember when companies used to make products that actually last and didn't need to be replaced every year or two? That's Belkin. I've been using Belkin chargers and cables for years. I beat them up, I drop them, I twist them, I roll my desk chair all over them again and again. And to this day, I have never had to replace a single Belkin product. Check out Belkin's cables, screen protectors, and wireless charging docks to keep your smartphone ready to go at any time. Better performance, better durability, better quality, better with Belkin. Go to Belkin.com and use promo code KICKASS at checkout for a 30% discount. That's Belkin.com and promo code KICKASS for 30% off at checkout. If you're a business owner like me, you know that managing sales tax is a complex and time-consuming process. It's easy to spend countless hours just trying to keep up with tax compliance instead of working on growing and improving your business. And at the end of the day, you still might screw up your taxes and get audited or fined. Thankfully, there's Avalara. Avalara simplifies sales tax with real-time tax rate calculations and automatic return filing. Avalara's software seamlessly integrates with your accounting, e-commerce, and point-of-sale systems, so it couldn't be easier. And they have experts in 15 countries around the world to help as you grow. Learn more at Avalara. That's A-V-A-L-A-R-A dot com slash kick. Avalara. Tax compliance done right. And now, on with the show. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. When David Chang first stormed onto the New York restaurant scene in 2004, the upstart chef who rebelled against traditional ideas about what constitutes fine dining ruffled more than a few feathers with his no reservations and no vegetarians policy, and his now legendary meltdowns in the open kitchen at Momofuku. But diners will always forgive perfectionism if it's in the pursuit of something delicious and made by a bona fide culinary genius. Today, David Chang is only mellowed slightly. But such is the responsibility when you grow from one restaurant so tiny that he couldn't put backs on the chairs because patrons wouldn't be able to reach the restroom, to a food and entertainment empire that now encompasses 14 restaurants, best-selling cookbooks, a podcast, and two series on Netflix, Ugly Delicious, which debuted earlier this year, and his latest, Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner, available on Netflix beginning October 23rd. Today, David Chang joins me on the show to discuss his latest TV series and the liberating feeling of eating and exploring with friends. He says when he was a kid, he originally wanted to be Tiger Woods, not Wolfgang Puck, and he eventually got into cooking because he hated his job in finance. He recalls learning his art in some of the best kitchens in New York and Tokyo, then rebelling against New York's fine dining establishment, how struggling to get Momofuku off the ground shaped his success, and why he still worries that his success could all go up in smoke. And speaking of smoke, Dave talks about smoking weed and touring Vancouver with its native son, Seth Rogen, for episode one of Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner, visiting Marrakesh with model Chrissy Teigen, and why the best food in Morocco isn't in the restaurants. He talks about his love-hate relationship with the California food scene, customers who Instagram their food, how delivery apps and other food tech are disrupting the restaurant industry, and what that means for chefs. Coming up with David Chang in just a moment. David Chang is a James Beard award-winning chef and founder of Momofuku, which now includes over a dozen restaurants around the world. He's the author of the best-selling cookbook Momofuku, host of the popular Ugly Delicious podcast, and the host of Ugly Delicious on Netflix, an eight-part documentary series about foods we love and the stories that shape them. Now he's out with a second Netflix series called Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner, BLD follows Chang as he travels around the world, accompanied by some of his celebrity friends like Seth Rogen, Chrissy Teigen, Lena Waithe, and Kate McKinnon. It's available on Netflix starting October 23rd, and today, David Chang joins me on the podcast. David, welcome. It's a real honor to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm really interested in your fascination with Houston because... I am originally from Houston. I never thought of it as having a huge food scene. But apparently you say that like it's one of your favorite food towns in the world. Why is that? Absolutely,
1: because uh, Houston, there's no place quite like it because of the different ethnic groups. Right. Ah. It's one of the most diverse on paper. Mm-hmm. I think it's the most diverse population in terms of immigrants in yeah. the country.
0: Okay, the Vietnamese, Indian, yeah.
1: Um, you also have, uh, how should I say, a city council that allows people to build whatever they want. Okay. <laughs> okay.
0: There's Not a very lot of regulation, huh? little little regulation, <laughs> okay. uh, and
1: and that's very good for yeah. business, but particularly for restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, there's low. There's no state income tax. Mm-hmm. There's um, bounty of the Gulf yeah. of Mexico. You have great. Seafood. You have also great farms and and uh, animals. Um, you have a lot of colleges around you. It's like okay, you have everything. Okay, and that's it. Just is like it's a perfect storm to create a culinary environment that is truly unique and American. And you see mergers of cuisines happening Mm -hmm. there that you're not seeing anywhere else. And that's an amazing thing. And I'm not even talking about like the specific, like if you just want to get Vietnamese food, Uh, that's as good as maybe the best in America, maybe outside of Orange County, who knows, it's definitely in conversation. And Houston is always surprising as to what's developing and percolating there. Mm -hmm. And because of that, Ability for people to try something new because it's not so cost prohibitive. I think you you get very interesting results.
0: Yeah. I mean, compared to New York, that must seem like a dream for a chef to kind of have the lack of regulation and be able to do what you want. I mean, that's the opposite of New York. Standard living is higher.
1: You know, it's, 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 it's it's a pretty good place to open up a restaurant.
0: And now, are you going to open a restaurant
1: there? Or you, know you what? don't have one right no, now? No, we right? don't, but okay. you never know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I genuinely love Houston. Yeah. It's got all the sports teams you want, too. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, they say Austin's weird. I think Houston is way weirder than Austin.
0: <laughs> well, I'm interested in how you came to cooking because it's funny. Your parents kind of had two businesses they owned restaurants and they owned a golf warehouse. And at least initially, you started off leaning more toward the latter. You wanted to be Tiger Woods when you were young. Well, right? I think my father wanted me to be. Okay, uh, he was. That really way, is like Tiger Woods. Way, yeah, way
1: ahead of the curve in terms of uh, Asian parents <laughs> trying to get their kids to play golf. Um, yeah, they. Uh, my dad, you know, worked his entire life to get out of the restaurant business and to make sure his kids would never work in it. So the irony of me getting into it, uh, you know, isn't lost on me. Um, but golf was uh, my predestined profession. Yeah. And I burned out at the ripe age of like 13. Yeah. yeah. Were you pretty good? I thought I was pretty good, but ultimately I think one of the reasons I burned out, besides me not loving it, is I wasn't as good as I thought I was. Yeah. Do you still play at all? Um, I've played three times
0: since 2003. Okay. Yeah. It's a huge waste of time. Can we just be honest? <laughs>
1: I can I don't see think three movies look to, in the time it takes yeah. to go. To and it's it's um yeah, it's a, it's a hobby. Yeah. Uh, I'm ultra competitive and uh-huh. I try to again, it's not a sport I love, but because so much of it is a mental game, I would uh do it not because I like doing it, it's so I could like, you know, get better at something i dislike doing yeah. <laughs> that, that is a warped warped way yeah, of thinking yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure
0: so then what was it that initially got you into cooking
1: you know i again i mentioned my dad really discouraged me from cooking mm-hmm. and I, so you it, were just like, rebelling against your parents is that it <laughs> um yeah i think so but but not really like i didn't understand what it was about i, I yeah. it was the the beginning of Food Network television. Uh, I grew up watching uh, PBS shows, great chefs of the West or mm-hmm. Europe. Um, and I think pretty early on, I, I I didn't really have an aptitude to do well in school. Okay. So um, I more or less uh, had an idea that that would be a fun thing to do mm. almost as a hobby or to be a good cook, never thinking about it as a profession. And, you know, after graduating college, I, I taught English for a little bit. I, I lived in Jackson yeah. Hole. I did all these things that didn't make too much sense, mainly because I couldn't get a job. In 99, that's when everyone was working at Tubesocks.com or some.com mm-hmm. or trying to be some banker <laughs> yeah. investing or whatever. And I couldn't get any of those jobs. So the irony is, is people always ask me, why did you get into cooking? Well, a lot of people didn't get into cooking because they couldn't get any other jobs and. Huh. I was in that same boat wow. weirdly enough um and i i i i think i had- well, i would say some kind of existential crisis at the you know twenty one twenty two i oh. i I didn't want to do something and be mediocre at it and I worked in the financial service industry and i had an intern at Payne Weber and wealth private wealth management and After teaching three months in Japan, I came back to get a job doing uh, like helping a a company that worked with European companies to list on the New York Stock Exchange. And it was the closest thing I could get. I was a gopher and I did like nothing. And I just saw pretty quickly that this is the life for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And while it might be enriching to them, sitting at a desk, literally Doing like what, working hard for nothing. I mean, it didn't make any, uh, there was no intrinsic reward. Yeah. I was like, this is not for me. And I had to take the leap of faith to try to do something new. And I didn't know if cooking was going to be my calling. All I knew was I, I definitely didn't want to do what I was doing. Wow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, you spent quite a few years working in different kitchens in New York and also in Japan. And, -hmm. in fact, I think in Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner, you say that you feel more at home in Japan than you do in Korea even. Why
1: is that? What is it about Japan that speaks to you? Um, You know, that's a a loaded comment for a lot of people, (laughs) especially if you're Korean or Japanese. You know, Koreans have historically been seen as a second-class citizen to Japanese culture for Mm -hmm. many years as they were – Uh, colonized by Japan and you know there's there's a lot of uh, history we shouldn't necessarily get into right now but um, Korea as a country uh, I have a strange relationship because growing up in northern Virginia um, having Korean friends and not having Korean friends I was able to have a diverse sort of set of friends and I never quite embrace korean culture i was really? always like sort of in between and when i went to korea in college in a, in a summer abroad program i i was shocked at as uh, they call me gyopo which is mm-hmm. translates to foreign born and huh. that's not a a a a, a kind comment mm-hmm. and i saw that a place that I was always excited to go to really wasn't embracing of me. Mm-hmm. and Well, it's like Chinese versus Chinese-American. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think a little bit more hostile. And, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I just, I thought, even with the kids all over from America, right, Korean-American kids, and this is a, a very common program, they, that I would find uh, some more like-minded individuals, and that wasn't the case either. Mm-hmm. So the irony is I get to Japan and Total isolation, really. Um, I got to see a side of Japan that I don't know if a lot of people get to see. And how I lived and what I did and where I worked, um, I think a lot of it just made sense to me. And I still don't know how or why, but one of the reasons why for sure that Japan felt more at home, my grandfather on my mom's side uh, really was an instrumental figure in my life growing up as a toddler, And he was a well to do Korean person, but was really Japanese because he was uh, educated in Japan. Oh, okay. Because he, they, they, a lot of the well to do, intelligent, educated men and women of Korea, when they're at a certain age, were taught to basically be Japanese. At a young age, he basically grew up in Japan. Okay. I mean, that's the best way to explain this. And he didn't like Korean food, Hmm. he didn't like kimchi. (laughs) <laughs> he, didn't you know. like he didn't like denjang Jige. He didn't like the staples that yeah. everyone else in my mom's family or my dad's side loved. And we would go out and eat Japanese food. We'd get on a bus and, and, and we'd take the bus around a lot of different weekends. I remember as a kid and he would take me and he would teach me how to eat stuff. And I just always remember that like, wow, grandpa's different. Yeah. And I think for whatever reason when I got to Japan as foreign as it was and it's very foreign still to me and how however hard it was I just made more sense at least culinary speaking wise. Mm. Uh and that's one nostalgic reason and there's a few others but um yeah it's a it's a strange thing to to go to Japan and feel like it's a little bit more home.
0: Yeah and now I wonder when you came back from Japan and you opened Momofuku Noodle House you're trying to transport this idea of the Asian noodle house to New York City. Did anyone at that point, what was that, 15 years ago, have a reference for what a noodle house was in New York?
1: Um, no, not not really. Um, and having worked at all these fancy restaurants in New York and not knowing enough to know what's, what was not f- possible, I went to Japan to study noodles to learn ramyun. It was something that I wanted to own. A lot of my peers were going to Europe and I again a lot of this came from golf a, a, a very competitive person always yeah. checking the scoreboard yeah and very realistic with my expectations and knowing that however good I was at cooking there was probably at least a dozen people ahead of me mm-hmm. and at that time uh to open up a restaurant as insane as it sounds is, is true uh, the only way you were gonna get your own restaurant and that would be a fancy fine dining restaurant mm-hmm. which was Truly, the only kind of restaurant in New York City, where right. uh, in two thousand, like yeah, like Boule and
0: Daniel, yeah. Well, um, yeah, and it's almost like it's the only kind of restaurant that could afford to exist in New York, right? And it seems like it's even more so these days. It seems like the more and more rents go up, one day you're only going to have Daniels and Boule, Yeah, and, and but it like wasn't that.
1: just the real estate. Yeah. It was if you told someone in nineteen ninety nine that you loved food, mm-hmm. and this is before the word foodie really even existed. You were seen as a snob, and it was elitist. Okay. And uh, th- you, Interesting. listen, there, I think there's a there's certainly an easy way to like see that, but um, I was fortunate enough to be able to travel the world, and not the world, but particularly in Asia. And the thing that I was always amazed at when I lived in Japan, and I actually lived in a homeless shelter with a lot of uh, really yes, with a lot of uh, Korean students that were trying to arbite is like a part time job. This com- I'm trying to like edit out some stuff in my head because this conversation could take hours. <laughs> okay. um, anyway, I, I saw something that I didn't see while I lived in America, mm-hmm. that eating well was a right that everybody wants to have. Mm-hmm. and sure. To eat well affordably. And a city as expensive as Japan, I mean, I, I ate like a king and cheaply. And how was that possible? And this is before guidebooks. I mean, yeah, there was Lonely Planet and and stuff like that, but they didn't really cover restaurants in the Mm -hmm. the infinite maze of the culinary landscape that is Japan. And I just got lost. And uh, because I could never afford anything expensive, I just sought out things. And one of the things Mm -hmm. I really ate a lot of was ramen. And uh, I compiled a list and I went to all the top spots and... Getting to travel China a little bit and just seeing that, like, wait, people eat really well affordably, mm-hmm. and they don't just yeah. eat like a burger; they're eating delicious, complex foods. Mm-hmm. So but when not, I a
0: lot of times it's not sushi. No, I mean, if you go to sushi in Japan, a lot of times it's going to be
1: pretty expensive.
0: But there's so many other types of cuisine. The Japanese food available. Is to you.
1: So like, not just Japanese food. All all foods really, particularly in Asia the rabbit hole is very deep yeah. and diverse and we just get an American distillation of what actually is in mm-hmm. terms of the perspective, particularly then. So I, I, um, I came back to America and I worked for Danielle Baloud and Andrew Carmelini at cafe Baloud, which at the time I thought was the best restaurant and, uh, things were happening in my life, some personal issues, family issues. And also I, I had a harder time adjusting back to America. I lived huh. in America. I lived in Japan, Uh, that go around, go and move back to Japan to cook for about 10 months. And I didn't expect to get culture shock coming back. And one of the things for me going back, even though I'm not Japanese, I could blend in. Okay. Right? Like (laughs) I'm not aware of my skin Uh color in Japan. Right. And then to come back and all the mannerisms are different, even how they season their food is much more subtle. And to come back to New York... I it it took me a long time to to get reacclimated, mm-hmm. and I think that also added to the fact that I was in a kitchen where some very terrific chefs that have now done great things, and I think I was right to get out because mm-hmm. I was never going to be better than them in that regard. Because the only way you're going to get a restaurant is some wealthy patron said, "Hey, Danielle Belude, I have a restaurant I want to open up in you know Pittsburgh. Do you have someone in mind that I could?" you could set me up with. And that's literally how you would get your own restaurant. Yeah. Huh. And but not in New York. No, no even in New York. Okay. But like it was a slow process to get right. you so I would be very, very behind on the leaderboard of getting that tap on the shoulder. Oh, okay. So and also cooking food that was while technically uh beautiful, it was not meaningful to me because what I really wanted was to make food for people that 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 uh like me, like, mm-hmm. I wanted to eat the food that I wanted to eat and not do this really beautiful stuff for mm-hmm. Upper East Siders. Yeah. And I I just was like, I got to figure out how to open up a place, and that's how Noodle Bar opened up. And the idea of having a ramen shop then did not exist. There was one in New York City called Rai Rai Ken is still there. But in terms of ramen, you almost saw it at, at Japanese restaurants, and maybe it was with udon, but it didn't mm-hmm. really exist. Right. And, and to, the right. F- to the point where I worked... But- at any place that served noodle soup on the Eastern Seaboard, I even worked in uh, <laughs> really? some casinos. Oh yeah, in, in Atlantic City <laughs> okay. because they actually had noodle bars. Right, and
0: they get a lot of Asian customers. Correct. So, so
1: I went okay. anywhere, huh. and I just went down this rabbit hole because it was uh, like a calling to me. And mm-hmm. and opened up in 2004 without any idea what I was doing, <laughs> and um, we served uh, momofuku. Noodle bar ramen mm-hmm. and should have gone out of business almost did several times.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've heard you talk about what a struggle it was in those first few months. And then I guess at a certain point you come to this realization that, okay, yes, we can do great noodles, but we can also do all kinds of other things. Do whatever tastes good.
1: What yeah. was the aha moment? for I it? mean, the aha moment is uh, you're going out of business. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a um, that's a good motivator. And 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 I I, I never like to cheapen the, the 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 metaphor analogy to cancer, but having had mm-hmm. seen cancer in my family and and the 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 strange sick thing that happens uh, that people start to live their life when they get diagnosed with mm-hmm. cancer. I saw us as we operated as a terminally ill patient. And the only option is to try everything yeah. and, and to have the will mm-hmm. and the grit and determination not to, to go out of business. Mm-hmm. And at the time, my mom, and she's still struggling with cancer, um, I just was like, this is, this is how we looked at it. Mm-hmm. We're going to be open to anything and everything. And we're going to throw out what's cool, what we think we have to do. We're going to do whatever works. Mm-hmm. And as painful as that whole moment was, we found our identity through that, like, really dark time <laughs> yeah
0: yeah I mean do you think that your life would have ended up uh, in a much different place if you had had some huge roster of investors backing you that you could go for no. a year and kind of wait to find your way or maybe you'd stayed at per se or Daniel and kind of tried to work your way up through the fine dining system no
1: absolutely everything would be different which is why I look back at it and it's it's um I I Sometimes, oftentimes think about that Cohen Brothers movie where Inside Lewin Davis, mm-hmm. <laughs> where yeah. the opposite of Lewin Davis was basically Bob Dylan. Yeah. And I'm not comparing myself to that. <laughs> That's not what I'm trying to say. I often compare myself with Lewin Davis because yeah. it's like he, if you made a right turn instead of a left turn, things would have been. And and right. when I look about at that time, all of these things that happen that are just comical, all turned out for the better somehow and i never put too much cr- like emphasis on skill mm-hmm. i'm very lucky huh. that we're here we've had some great people i've gotten way too much credit and we've been in the right place at the right time and we've definitely worked our butts off yeah um but had we had a more traditional path and investors and a comfort level of financing i I'm a kind of person that doesn't work well with a net. Mm-hmm. Okay. You, you know, I like, have that I need something to, know, to light a fire under your ass, Yeah, I, I need to yeah. know that, like, there's nothing that's going to yeah. save me. and And I had to really, like, unfortunately, that gets the best out mm-hmm. of me. And I wish it was any other way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting what you said about how you don't put much
0: stock in skill. Because I've heard you say that really good cooks never become great chefs. When you're hiring, apparently... You look for chefs who have, as you put it, just
1: barely enough talent. Why? Because if you are determined as a cook, you're going to get better. Mm-hmm. It's not a skill set that... Um, it's not like I'm asking people to figure out some quantum mechanic problem. Right. Right? <laughs> this is craft and through repetition, regardless of your skill level, hard work in this industry is the great equalizer. And... What I'm looking for is really three things, but one is are they harder on themselves than anyone else? When mm. they make a mistake, are they gonna to go to bed at night not being able to sleep because they could have done a better job? And and two, like, do they have like this idea of like total immersion in it? That they that to me is sort of translates like to love of the business. Yeah. It's like they can't get enough of it that mm-hmm. they have to do it and it's this idea that loving something I think has been uh, manipulated by marketing somehow because it's like if you love something particularly your job you got to wake up every day with a smile thinking this is the best and everyone's jealous mm-hmm. of me I actually think the more common approach to the more realistic approach to loving your job is you love it 51% versus 49% hating it <laughs> really and it's that 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 teetering on that yeah. and then yeah lastly it's like do they love to feed other people Uh uh-huh you know and and those are the qualities like usually in family meal and those are the three things i really look for is 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 um i'm not trying to judge a person Mm -hmm. at their best moments i want to know does someone have the kind of integrity that right when they can make a shortcut and no one's going to know are they go and even if they do something right, no one's going to congratulate them. Are they still yeah. going to try to do it the harder way? Yeah. So only rewarding cooking, which is why I think it's so hard to be a manager of people in the culinary force, which is why I don't think chefs and restaurant managers get enough credit. Uh, unfortunately, uh, hopefully things change in terms of how we can pay people. But the only way you can really re- like motivate people is the carrot of personal growth.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. Cause it's almost like, which is hard to say to a chef, you know, you have to take your ego out of it and you have to have that mentality of wanting to be a person who is in, in service of someone else and trying to make someone happy. And yourself Give them a good experience. to do it right. Yeah.
1: There's a right way and there's a wrong way. Mm-hmm. And yeah. those are high standards and I fail at them all the time. And you have to be comfortable in failing. Mm-hmm. You have to be completely like surrender to the idea of failing and Failing not being a bad yeah. thing.
0: Yeah. Well, you've got so much on your plate these days. You have your show Ugly Delicious on Netflix, and now you have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, I really enjoyed Ugly Delicious because it was so interesting how you know, you explore the cultural and sociological aspects of a specific food and do this very deep dive into all all of the different uh, origins of one particular food and how it was influenced by different cultures that you didn't even know about. And I love BLD just because it's just fun to go traveling with friends. What did you want to do with breakfast, lunch, and dinner that you couldn't do with Ugly Delicious?
1: Well, Ugly Delicious is its own thing, and it's, I mean— it's a labor of love because a lot of work from a lot of different people goes into it. But sure. we really wanted to figure out how to view culture and food and, and not to go too deep into it. It's just, it's, you know, it's exploring culture in ways that hopefully people haven't seen. And mm-hmm. it's a sense of discovery. And it that sense of discovery could also be a held opi- a opinion someone holds and then they realize that they were wrong. Yeah. And that could be me or someone else in the show, um, and I think for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, while it is essentially a friends traveling, eating, having fun, I, I do think that there's still a sense of discovery, mm-hmm. and, and and that could be again me or 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 my friend or you know the city. Like it just to me, well, two different things, they're on the same spectrum, going after the same goal. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I loved episode one because you go to Vancouver with its favorite son, Seth Rogen, and because it's Seth Rogen and because it's Vancouver, which has always had a fairly tolerant attitude to mind-altering substances, you guys smoke a lot of weed, or at least it looks that way. Do you smoke a lot of weed, or is it just that Seth's weed is particularly potent?
1: I, I don't really smoke weed, no? um, you other just than college. A lot? Yeah, <laughs> uh, but. Uh... I knew that filming that episode was going to uh, contain it yeah. because it is legal <laughs> in Vancouver, and Seth is—he's just a, a just a wonderful guy. He's as yeah. nice as can be, as grounded as can be, and Vancouver couldn't ask for a better ambassador of that city than Seth. He genuinely loves it, and I'm always shocked at how down to earth he is. And I think he's a really a reflection of the personality of that city of so mm-hmm. many good people, and um. Yeah, we there was a there was a marijuana smoked. Uh <laughs> and in a, a, a lot of it and I I really yeah. was only having one puff. Okay. Um so But it was powerful stuff. It huh? was powerful stuff. Yes. <laughs> I I was nervous about that mm-hmm. whole day. Yeah. Now, I've always
0: heard that there's a big Chinese population in Vancouver. And it kind of comes through on this show. You guys go to a lot of great Asian restaurants there. And I guess Seth said something like uh, when he was in high school, the population was 60% Asian. What is the
1: appeal of Vancouver to Chinese immigrants? Uh, I'm not sure we try to. The hard thing about a show like this is you you touch upon topics you would love to go deeper in. Mm-hmm. And one of those would be the the handover of Hong Kong to back to China oh, in 1997 yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, how that had serious repercussions for how uh, Chinese immigrant patterns would have uh, play out in Vancouver for whatever reason I don't know the answer became sort of the one of the central hubs yeah and that's we sort of covered it when we were at the uh, Hong Kong barbecue master uh, and uh, um, I I don't know why. Yeah, you wouldn't think so. It's
0: kind of, it's a cold place. You wouldn't think that would be a natural place. <laughs> but I'd
1: argue some of the best food, Chinese food particularly, is in the mm. world, in the world is there yeah. because of the resources, okay. the natural abundance of oh, British yeah. Columbia, the yeah. seafood there. Um, it's a really remarkable city. Yeah, I mean, Vancouver, I know people would say, oh, it rains too much. It's it rains for like five minutes a day. Yeah.
0: It's an amazing place. Yeah, and I think it's in that episode where you actually lament that you should be spending all of your time in the kitchen, but yet all of this other stuff that you're doing takes you away from that. You've got this huge food and entertainment empire that you run with Netflix shows and a podcast and books and all that. Do do
1: you sort of feel like you're kind of a victim of your own success at this point? I don't think I'm a victim. I think I'm still just trying to figure it out, like Mm -hmm. everyone else. Yeah, you know, uh, I still have the same insecurities I had as a teenager. Yeah, and all the success is something that I don't really believe too much of. Really, and uh, yeah, I I don't feel like it could just evaporate uh, in a day or something. Yes, I'm a pretty paranoid gentleman (laughs) to begin with, but um, I tend not to think about whatever's happened in the past. Mm -hmm. I tend to only think about the negative and. Uh you know those that are close to me know that I'm a pretty, you know, pessimistic person and I always joke that I'm a really an optimist uh, that a pessimist is the best version of an optimist because mm. like I I want to be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I want to be wrong. Um okay. and uh with all the things that are happening, I think it can happen because we have a good team and I know that mm. sounds trite and uh sort of like a canned response but um but well, you have to. We have. I mean, that you, you cannot
0: operate this many restaurants at the level that you're operating them and ensure quality control and ensure that every diner gets the kind of experience that you originally intended, unless you have that team. Right. That really believes in your vision, too.
1: And it's no longer my vision. I've stepped down as CEO, and the vision now belongs to Marguerite Mariscal. Mm-hmm. And I'm there as you know in a variety of roles but i don't oversee the day-to-day anymore i'm okay i'm there i still i work a tremendous amount and one of the reasons i guess i work is as hard as i do because it is an addiction i am addicted to work there's no question about really? it work and it's one of the few addictions that's like totally acceptable <laughs> right yeah yeah um, yeah.
0: this society yeah i'll uh, sleep when i'm dead yeah
1: and and part of that is like it i think it. I don't know how effective it is anymore, but it certainly Mm. keeps me like from doing stupid things. Yeah. Right.
0: (laughs) Well, in episode two of BLD, uh, you get the wonderful privilege of going to Marrakesh with Chrissy Teigen. I love Marrakesh. I I think that that was your first time. My first time. I love it it because it's literally like stepping into Aladdin. When's the last time you were there? It's been 10 years or over 10 years since I was there.
1: Beautiful, beautiful city.
0: Yeah, and it's funny that you chose it because it's not really a restaurant town, you say, in the show. so where, No, I mean, there are definitely restaurants, there?
1: and there's definitely the, the places to buy food. Mm-hmm. And but that's they're actually not where st- the
0: cool stuff is happening, right? No, there is Culinarily? cool stuff in the med- okay.
1: Medina. There is. It's just that people always say the best food is in someone's home. Mm-hmm. And we were very fortunate enough to have Tariq and his family, his wife, and his daughter uh, allow us to have uh, dinner with them. And it was... Um, a wonderful meal. Yeah, I
0: would love to go back there. And it's funny because as
1: you're going through the Souk in Marrakesh,
0: all these people are saying, hey, Chinaman, hey, Jackie Chan. And it's almost like they're weirdly oblivious <laughs> to, the, to the overt racism there. But it's it's a weird place because Morocco, it's not like its neighbors in, in the sense that it's way more culturally tolerant than a lot of North Africa and the Middle East. Why do you think that is?
1: Uh, I'm not sure. I think a lot of it has to do with the the. If I had to guess, it'd be the history and the and the, the, and the trade. trade. Yeah. Right. And yeah. and uh, I didn't get a chance to visit Casablanca or any of the other cities in Morocco, but um, I think tourism is. I think it's been affected by some form of to- tourism mm-hmm. for several hundred years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So they got it in their blood. Yes.
0: Yeah. Now, for th- episode three, you actually come to L.A. A while back, you got some flack from West Coasters for criticizing the food scene here. I'm going to beat you up with this quote. You said, uh, they don't manipulate food. They just put figs on a plate. Now you have a restaurant here, yes. Mo- Major Domo. You're personally spending a lot of time here. Have you changed your mind about LA? No,
1: I, I've that was not about Los Angeles. That was, oh, was uh, a quote that uh, Tony Bourdain in 2009 right. did at uh, a food festival. Um, we spoke about uh, San Francisco. Oh, that was okay. That Bay was area.
0: California, not specific to LA. No, no, no. Okay, just
1: just literally San Francisco in the Bay Area. Oh. and what oh. got taken out is the first time I ever got in public trouble. Yeah. Um. And just so people don't send me hate mail, <laughs> I, um, I, I listen. As a person, I, I try to celebrate all things that are tolerant, mm-hmm. that are uh, diverse and open. And I try to be that. I fail more often than not. And what I was just trying to explain uh, when I was <laughs> a much younger fellow was San Francisco and the Bay Area at large embraces the new uh, and it's been sort of the the vanguard for all things new culturally mm-hmm. uh, from politics to sexuality, right. to music, sure. to drugs, um, to food, technology. And I found it to be stifling a bit that every restaurant, particularly then, it really seemed like every restaurant was trying to cook food. Uh, Exactly, or the same ilk of Chez Panisse. And Mm -hmm. I love Alice Waters, Mm -hmm. and she's been a very instrumental figure in my life. All I was trying to suggest, and I could have articulated much better, was with the produce that San Francisco has and the the sophisticated dining that it has, that it should be the best place in the world to eat. It's hard to do that when everyone's doing the same, and it's this homogenized thing. And San Francisco celebrates diversity, and maybe that was a true in every facet, mm-hmm. except food, huh that's fascinating, and that could be applied to California yeah. at large and yeah, mm-hmm. I think that uh, without going too deeper into that, um I understand it a little bit better because I was definitely young and dumb, but i I wasn't trying to denigrate anyone yeah, um I was simply jealous, yeah, to have the produce of California is unbelievable oh yeah like an abundance of riches (laughs) you know you walk in the one of the farmers market here and you just see dates like you're like oh yeah there's dates in this country
0: yeah yeah we in california forget that like not all of the country has access to avocados
1: year round (laughs) yeah and just there's two springs Mm -hmm. there's literally two springs like what (laughs) you know what i mean like i can get tomatoes pretty much like 7 months out of the year. Yeah. Um and the sweetness of the strawberries and the citrus and not just the the fruits and vegetables, the abundance of the ocean in the mm. in the Pacific, it's just amazing. So uh, of course I want to explore all different ways to
0: cook food. Now speaking of the abundance of the ocean, in that episode you go to a Cajun crawfish boil place in LA. I think it's called Hot and Juicy. Yes. I love those places. Growing up in Houston, I kind of have a real taste for the Cajun stuff. But it's interesting. I've noticed that, especially in L.A., all the good Cajun shrimp boil places are predominantly in Asian neighborhoods like Alhambra, K-Town, Arcadia, San Gabriel.
1: What is the Asian-Cajun or Cajun connection there? I'm not sure. Really? I'm really not sure. And I'm not, again, trying to rock the boat here. But outside outside of the, say— Chesapeake Bay, Mid Atlantic area, uh-huh. and the Gulf, which would include obviously Houston to New Orleans, and then parts of the Pacific Northwest where that are coastal. You have access to crabs, and then obviously coastal California. Uh, but crabs, crab eating, and crawfish—it's uh, not—it's not, um, it's not a really embraced by American sort of. Right. It's culture. Messy. It's, messy it's messy and it's stinky it's, and garlic. It's hard to yeah. eat, get your food. A lot of work. Yeah. It's a lot of work. <laughs> and I think what's hard to understand, again, growing up eating crab in the Bay, uh, Chesapeake Bay area, yes, it's all of those things. But if you remove the meaning of nostalgia and the meaning of mm-hmm. community and the meaning of friends and family, yeah, it's it's a pain in the ass. But <laughs> being able to eat that way, it is like memorializing good times and good things besides it being super delicious. And so it's the social aspect. I think the social aspect forces you to kind of slow down. Right. Yeah. And there's something about the tactile nature of it all and how people eat. When you go to hot and juicy or boiling crab or some of the other restaurants like this in the L.A. area, you know, eating that way at a table paper and you just go to town. Yeah. That's not so different than how most of the world eats. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? It's sharing. It's communal. And I do know, like, having spent time in Asia, it's like, that's how, mm-hmm. like, not every meal is that way. It's a celebratory yeah. meal. And I think it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't have an answer <laughs> other than, you know, I I hope that it becomes more of a staple yeah. uh, of American cuisine because eating... That way, mm-hmm. you know whether it's a boil or a clam bake, like even like a lobster bake, mm-hmm. those are beautiful things. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I, I can cook a lobster in a pot. I don't need to put it in a sand pit, you know, and put. <laughs> but again, yeah. that process. Yeah, there's something wonderful yeah. about eating that way, and and I think if you're in the city. That's the closest way to eating yeah. and celebrating community and family again. I don't know. Yeah. I'm going crazy about but,
0: this. but No, no. I think you're on to something. And I also think that it's not like dining in a typical restaurant where you still have a certain amount of artifice or, right. or, or image that you're There's trying no to create. It's a mess. And you just kind of have to take that mask off. And it's almost like it creates more connection than a typical restaurant experience. So I was
1: overjoyed that Lena wanted to share her place mm-hmm. with the world. Or I thought that was – I just – have very fond memories, and we were able to do that. I was yeah. so so happy because truly eating shellfish that way might be my favorite thing to eat, even mm-hmm. more than barbecue. You know, really? which is very similar uh-huh. to you know. but yeah, yeah, it is. But like shellfish yeah. is, I don't know. I, I it's just yeah. different.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I get what you're saying. I, I'm curious. I have to ask you about this because for <clears throat> me, there's a little bit of a pet peeve: people who Instagram their food. Mm. Is it a double-edged sword for a restaurateur? Because yes, you're getting that promotion, but it's also the person promoting you is not someone working for Bon Appetit. Right. <laughs> they, oftentimes the food ends up looking like shit when it's in a photograph. It looks flat and brown and bland. Who wants to eat that? Or a doctor to look
1: really good. Oh right, yeah, as a filter. Yeah. Um, you know, when we first opened up Co in 2008, we banned photography. Oh yeah. Um, and we got a lot of. Well, this is before the camera phone as well. Mm-hmm. Um I I would love to go back and I'm guilty of it I take as photo as many photos as anyone else these days about food even if they're bad photos I'm doing it cuz that's my job I want to go back to remember cer- certain mm-hmm. things or maybe there's a technique I was missing in, and to to capture it and um I would love for us to Think about food in a different way moving forward, but I don't know if that's possible. Mm -hmm. Like for instance, I was able to go down to the Masters and film something this year. And when you go down to Augusta National, if you've been able to go down there, they don't allow you to take your cell phone out. There's no cell phone, really. And you'll you'll be banned for life. Okay, right? If you take a photo or anything, it's just it's it's forbidden. The green jackets come
0: after you. Yeah, (laughs) really.
1: And it's very civil. And it's amazing, it was like 30 to 50,000 people enter per day around the numbers. No one has a cell phone. People are using landlines because they have these phone booths set up. And it's like going in a time warp, time yeah. capsule, because it's what life was like pre-cell phones, mm. pre cell uh, huh. phones, pre smartphones, per se. Really? You're in the moment. And it's hard to find people. If you get split up with your friends, you're like, how do you find people? And it, through that chaos and commotion, you're more present. Yeah. I thought it was unbelievable and I didn't miss it at all. I mean, yes, afterwards you're like, oh man, I got to check up on all these things, but that's interesting. I would love for us as a just group of people to be able to go out to eat, starting with myself, I got to get better at it first and just be in the moment to talk to someone Mm And have a conversation and yeah. not just take photos of the food and then to share it with everyone. Ironically, I, I, not ironically, I think one of the reasons why photos are being taken is, weirdly, food is the last, maybe one of the last places where <clears throat> if you take a photo of something, some, it's like a physical manifestation of something that's going to be, you know, gone, right? Literally gone. Right, yeah. Food is ephemeral. Yeah. It's, the, it's FOMO. Mm -hmm. you can't download that food yeah maybe not yet right yeah Yeah. Um, and it's the one experience you know it's the same reason why you know musicians put albums out just so they can go on tour Mm -hmm. right and (laughs) it's it's the one thing that's an experience that you still have to go and physically do and i think Mm -hmm. if we can find a way to get rid or limit how we take photos of food um without I you can't force it when this is people's own volition like right I, I think right. that it's going to make the dining experience better because yeah. people will be in the moment yeah
0: real quickly before we wrap up here I'm just curious where do you see food going in, then say the next year or two can you think of what might be the next hot dish that everyone goes crazy over
1: um I'm not sure what the hot dish is okay. um I really don't know I think <laughs> it's what I think about around this time you know year. when you invent it <laughs> I hope so but um I think one thing I, I I'm certain of is uh, in urban areas, um, food is going to be uh, to be in restaurants is going to be more difficult than ever before. Really? Yeah. Really. We have not quite understood the ramifications of food technology and cell phones and how huh. that's going to dramatically alter um, how you get food. Okay. I mean, people You're in L.A. About the the delivery apps, right? <laughs> Certainly. Okay. And and there's other things that are going to come down the pipeline, but I think we're at the beginning. Of what is going to be a uh, seismic shift in how we consume food. Interesting. And how that's going to have um, some good effects and some very bad effects. Yeah. And we're not even talking about the environment yet as to how that's going to impact food. All of these things, technology and the environment, are going to change the conversation of food in ways that we've never had to deal with in you know, first world society, yeah, well, I'm sure that you heard this study that came
0: out recently where they said, uh, I guess diners who order in enjoy their meal more have more more of their pleasure centers get activated by dining in than actually
1: going to a restaurant now, so we'll see what happens i yeah. I, I have ideas I, I tend to not share a lot of them because it's mm-hmm. like my own proprietary thing as to how people <laughs> might go out to eat, yeah, but um you know i i I think the environment. Is going to change, like just being in Los Angeles, for instance. These fires that have constantly plagued Los Angeles um, and the state of California—that's not only affected lives, like real impactful ways. It's affected in less important ways, how people eat. Like you can't get certain things. Vineyards have burned down. Yeah, you know they're. I I'm worried. Yeah, and I think huh. it's a it's a good kind of worry. because we need to start talking about this Mm -hmm. and being a little bit more responsible. And that's a conundrum I'm in because we're opening up more restaurants and (laughs) being a new father. Like I am thinking about things in ways that I haven't before. Yeah. Well
0: again, David's new show is breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's now available on Netflix. David Chang. Thanks, man. Thank you, man. Thanks again to David Chang for coming on the podcast. Catch his new TV series, Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner, streaming now on Netflix. Keep up with David at momofuku.com or on Twitter at @DavidChang, David Chang. And be sure to subscribe to his podcast, Ugly Delicious, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Folks, I've been a small business owner for just about 20 years now, so I know how easy it is to waste a lot of time trying to keep up with your taxes and tax laws are so complicated at the end of the day you still might get it wrong. Stop wasting valuable time worrying about your sales tax returns and focus on the things you actually love about running your business with a little help from Avalara. Avalara simplifies sales tax compliance with real-time rates and automatic filing. Their software seamlessly integrates with the systems you're already using so it couldn't be easier. Go to avalera.com slash kick to learn more. That's avalera A-V-A-L-A-R-A dot com slash kick. Avalara, tax compliance done right. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us while you're there. Five-star ratings and detailed reviews are one of the best ways for new listeners to discover the show. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at, at kickassnewspod and recommend us to your friends on your social media. For more fun stuff, visit kickassnews.com and I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, I'm Ben Mathis and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News.